Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. Oh, and on that front, by the way, uh, we have got many contributions. You know, we're having uh, for existing listeners and for new listeners, here's a kind of warning or promise. Uh, We're having a bit of a discussion about how we get the money into public services in the UK. Uh, on this podcast and how we get better public service delivery. And we're getting these brilliant contributions from around the world. And later on, as we reflect again on this debate about whether co-payments is a solution or a red herring, we've got contributions from Portugal, from America, I think, from, yeah, all over the place Um, and back to Belgium, where part of this debate began. Uh, So, yeah, we are... Uh, very much global. Berlin as well, I think, gets a a look in. Uh, Very global in our perspectives on that and many other issues. Anyway, look, thank you for uh, coming along and reflecting and trying to make sense of it all. If it's okay with all of you, in a moment or two, I will be uh, reflecting on uh, a couple of issues briefly. Uh, Ukraine, we haven't, we've been giving that a miss recently. I'm just going to reflect on that for a moment or two, partly based on some stuff I've been reading. Um, And then uh, very quickly, because a lot of it's been done and the anniversary is passed, but I thought, you know, this 25-year anniversary since the election of Labour in 1997 with that landslide, um, I will uh, reflect on it's dangerous extrapolating lessons from previous election victories. Um, as those of you who've kindly subscribed to Patreon will have noted from um, the elections I've covered in the bonus podcast. But anyway, th- there are lessons and I'll reflect on that. And then over to you this week from questions that range uh, very widely, but all are urgently topical. Uh, Before all of that, a couple of notices. Uh, For those of you who do kindly subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, there is a brand new bonus podcast for you. Uh, That is the 2017 general election. Um, And there's another way of getting that, uh, not just on Patreon, but via the Apple podcast system. Um, And there will be a link to that in the blurb for this uh, podcast. So that's 2017, uh, one of the most overlooked elections for all kinds of reasons. That was one where no one wanted to learn lessons, uh, curiously, even though there were lessons to be learnt. So, yeah, that's on the uh, uh, Patreon website. Uh, website? Is it a website? Well, you know what I mean, the kind of delivery system mechanism. Um, so, yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, and also... Uh, King's Place. There's another live show. I've had a bit of a break from uh, the live shows, but they are coming back and the first one will be at King's Place. That's on June the 8th, a brand new show where we will gather to make sense of things after the local elections, probably after the Grey Report. Who knows when that will come out in this we're awaiting the outcome of what is the longest police investigation in history. Um, so, yeah, that's June the 8th, and tickets are available on the King's Place website. And some of you uh, from outside London kindly asked, you know, are you going to carry on streaming? Well, it is being streamed. So there's that option as well on that website. And also, um, uh, I'm coming up to the Edinburgh Festival, 
uh, for the last two weeks. Now, uh, before I started recording this podcast, I said I must make a note of the precise dates and the venue, um, and I've forgotten. But I'm doing it for the last two weeks of the Edinburgh Festival, and tickets are available on the Fringe Festival website. It's For those of you who've been before, it's the same place, the same venue. I'll get all the details for you uh, next week, but um, I'm here now recording without them in front of me. But yeah, back at the Edinburgh Festival after two summers where, well, I haven't been and I know one summer it didn't exist. I think last summer, some of you went and... It, anyway, it's back to the kind of full full Monty. Yeah, the Edinburgh Festival. So that's, uh, that's another thing. So hopefully we can all gather and make sense of it all in all these different uh, places in the weeks and months to come. So Ukraine, I, I've, I don't know if any of you have read, there's a really great book by the author Juliet Nicholson. She's just, she's just done another fantastic book on uh, the icy winter of, I think, was it 1962 or 1963, um, which brings to life that uh, period. Um, but she also did a great book, uh, which I've just been looking at again on uh, July 1914, before the beginning of the First World War, looking at what was happening in the UK at that point. And, of course, what she conjures up is the terrible innocence before the slaughter and the sense that few, if any, were aware of the slaughter to come, that sunny July 1914. And then if you read A.J.P. Taylor, the historian, uh, now dead but a legendary figure, um, he, he wrote a book about the origins of the First World War and shows how it happened almost by accident uh, that uh, the various countries were in alliances that were formed largely for defensive reasons. And then a sequence of events unfolded that triggered a world war. And at no point in advance of it becoming a world war World War, world war uh, did any of the moving parts have a sense that that would necessarily be the consequence? Um, he cheekily kind of argues that there were all kinds of accidents that triggered the war. Uh, some of you will know, I mean, it's kind of contentious and he was partly being mischievous, but only partly. Um, railway timetables uh, meant that mobilisation inevitably led to a kind of terrible conflagration. Um, the famous kind of trigger, the murder of the Archduke, um, was almost accidental. If the Archduke had a plan to take his original route, he would not have been assassinated and that wouldn't have triggered a kind of unfolding of the uh, uh, alliances and uh, what followed from that. And it seems to me that although, of course, I'm not suggesting an inevitable outcome uh, in a similar way, um, there is a sense of, with this Ukraine situation, the moving parts being in different places 
with a lack of clarity about where this is going. Um, so you hear some of the moving parts, the United States under the uh, elderly Biden. We've got China. We've got the European Union. We've got the UK. Um, and all of them are themselves relatively weak. Uh, and that is a parallel with the beginnings of the First World War. You had a kind of uh, insular czar in Russia uh, cocooned from his population. Um, you had a somewhat bewildered liberal government in Britain. There's another famous book that was written about the strange death of liberal England, and it charted the degree to which all kinds of things were happening that was kind of troubling the assumptions of liberalism at the time. And uh, it was led then by Asquith, and they kind of ended up in a war which troubled some uh, liberals. You had a Kaiser in Germany. Germany still really, it was still relatively new as a united country, the unification under uh, Bismarck, trying to establish itself uh, as a global force. You had a crumbling Austrian-Hungarian empire, which didn't incidentally survive the First World War. And each of these moving parts were making calculations partly for domestic audiences. There were also exertions of machismo, a naval arms race between Germany and Britain, which was again partly defensive. Um, oh, if they're building up their naval weaponry, we should do the same. Um, but it was not at any point designed with the intention that all these countries would be ending up in various alliances, taking part in a terrible, brutal, savage world war, almost until it happened. And here you see with Ukraine dangers of that happening. If you remember when the whole thing began, there were many warnings about the dangers of escalation. Um, and to some extent, the uh, warnings have been applied. So, you know, there, is going, there isn't going to be a sort of no-fly zone established, which would, in effect, be a declaration of war against Russia. But you can see, and it's partly for domestic audiences, just like domestic audiences were very much in mind as the countries made their moves uh, in the build-up to the First World War without quite realising what they were doing. Um, you can see the language, and to some extent, though it's all very imprecise, the objectives of the uh, Western uh, countries involved in this uh, becoming far more uh, uh, provocative and dangerous. It's a form of escalation in itself. So you have uh, British politicians, partly with a domestic audience in mind, uh, saying that Putin must be defeated without explaining fully what that means. Uh, you have had Biden almost by mistake, saying Putin must be removed, when that is emphatically not a formal objective. And all of this is so dangerous because if you step back from the astonishingly courageous response from Ukraine, Putin 
if he chooses not to be defeated, can do all sorts of things to avoid such an outcome, however that's defined. I mean, he could, if he wants to, he could flatten Ukraine. Um, I, I mean, it would be an, uh, even more irrational than everything he's done so far, because, um, I mean, there is a rationale from his perspective of wanting to re uh, recreate the Soviet Union. But if you regard Ukraine as a part of Russia, to destroy it is a sort of, uh, you know, act of self-harm. But, I mean, we're not dealing with reason solely here. Uh, but he's got chemical weapons and he's got a nuclear armory uh, which could destroy anything he wants to destroy. So if he considers defeat as a Western aim, he can avoid it by deploying these weapons. So it seems to me that uh, with all these different moving parts uh, raising the language, we are in a more dangerous place now. Uh, some people are saying, wow, it's amazing, you know, the, the, the Russian invasion. Has there been a more incompetent and misjudged military ac exercise in recent decades? Um, but that makes the world a more dangerous place, not less dangerous. Um, because while that is obviously the case, Putin can th think, well, what do I do now to counter such a narrative? And it's really dangerous. And it seems to me that the language, the posturing of uh, politicians, uh, British politicians, American politicians, others, uh, needs to be lessened, reduced, um, and a, a much greater clarity as to what form the end of this conflict can take, which avoids the escalation uh, into, well, frankly, nuclear war. Um, and it is really worth reading some of the assumptions and attitudes before 1914. You know, there's loads of stuff about the 1930s and the parallels between Germany and Putin's, uh, Putin's leadership of Russia. But I think the guide... I mean, I say it's not precise and I'm not predicting this is going to happen, but look at how we all stumbled into the First World War without any sense that the stumble was going to take place and what was then to follow. And I really reckon, I hope, you know, British politicians read that book about July 1914 and A.J.P. Taylor's Origins of the First World War because slaughter on an inconceivable level can happen by accident when there are several moving parts without clearly defined objectives. And um, it seems to me that that sort of nuclear dimension heightens the dangers to the point where surely everyone should be focused on how to avoid that from happening. Um, and so, therefore, defeat for Russia, in inverted commas, has to be more clearly defined. And with it, a sense for the Russian people uh, what the West does not want to happen.
Um, and, uh, you know, so- something needs to be navigated more coherently through what I think is a, a currently a very dangerous phase in which escalation is happening, um, almost without any preemptive arguments or framing of arguments about it. Buonasera, my name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao. Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima. Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze. Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Now, to go back to a safe innocent past, 1997. I'm only going to do this briefly because I realise the 25th anniversary has passed um, of the 1997 election, but it's only just passed and it's quite good fun looking back. Um, God, I remember it personally vividly that night of the 1997 election. It was a great evening because uh, on route, I got, uh, I was working at the New Statesman then as political editor and Jeffrey Robinson was the owner and he got us all the, the staff of the New Statesman tickets to the Royal Festival Hall event, uh, you know, where Blair descended uh, in the middle of the night, say, great day has dawned, has it not? And everybody was there and, um, and everyone was dancing uh, to Simply Red, uh, who were playing live, I think. And I remember ending up almost dancing with David Miliband, um, who was on the dance floor. And he said to me, I'm sure we'll wake up in the morning and find the Tories have won again as we jive together. And it was a very revealing moment because it reflected the context of that great uh, landslide victory, uh, which was fear of Tory wins. After four successive uh, election victories for the Conservatives, New Labour emerged out of that fourth, the 1992 defeat. There's a bonus podcast on the 92 election, actually, uh, on Patreon. Um, uh, kind of, it, they were framed by defeat. And, or, it, of course, David Miliband was joking, but it reflected this fear that the Tories always won. And they did everything to um, uh, avoid that. The other thing that happened to me on that evening was a friend of mine was working on a, a Paul McCartney album in Abbey Road and um, he invited me along to, to witness the recording and he said, oh, you might not meet McCartney but you'll enjoy being in, McCart- in Abbey Road. And it was, it was a great session. And uh, halfway through that kind of evening, um, I was sitting on a bench with my friend and then this guy said, hey, budjop. And it was McCartney, and, and, and my friend said, oh, Steve's going off to the Royal Festival Hall. Oh, yeah, they're going to win, aren't they, tonight? I think they're going to win. Um, and then he started doing impersonations of uh, Gordon Brown. He says, yeah, Gordon Brown, when he speaks, you know, he kind of smiles halfway through a sentence, you know, it's kind of weird. And he, he did an impression of Gordon Brown, quite a good one. Um, and, and if you remember at the time, Gordon Brown, during sound bites, had been told he looked too serious. So he rather awkwardly smiled halfway through and McCartney had picked up on this. Um, and uh, I wrote it up when I interviewed McCartney a couple of months later that he did this impression. And then McCartney went to uh, Chequers to see Blair and uh, Blair's opening gambit, I happen to know, to McCartney was... 
hey, will you do your Gordon Brown impression? Um, so it was quite a night. But that exchange with David Miliband uh, reflected the caution of the new Labour offer in 1997. It was uh, an incremental manifesto. It wasn't a hugely radical manifesto. Indeed, um, Tony Blair tried to make a virtue out of that by saying, look, you know, old Labour, they have kind of promised the earth and then delivered nothing, you know, because they wouldn't have got elected. Um, And yet the art of it was to make it seem exciting and radical. I looked recently at some columns written uh, before the 97 election uh, and the ones in reference to Labour, the term radical recurred again and again and again. Uh, Tony Blair was clever. He made it the radical centre without quite being precise as to what that meant. Um, but there was a sense almost that a change of governing party was a form of excitement in itself. And Blair, Blair's genius was to convey reassurance and excitement at the same time. The project was also about owning the future. Uh, in a way, uh, the past was dismissed entirely as old, old versus new labour. Um, so there was no kind of framing and the media was not interested in uh, whether Blair was like Harold Wilson or James Callan or, you know, uh, previous Labour leaders. They had become old and this was new. Um, so the lessons, oh, the other lesson is that team around Blair and Brown worked 18-hour, 20-hour days, seven days a week with a relentless focus on winning uh, and the policies that were related to the values. Um, now, the policies were too cautious, in my view. They could have gone further in some respects, even after those four defeats. But it all cohered like a kind of... I remember Tim Montgomery, the Tory commentator, saying parties win when, when there's a sort of symphonic quality to the offering, uh, that, that, that it all... It all kind of works, the values, the policies that arise from the values and so on. And, and it did have that quality. And it was the product of relentless hard work. Um, and of course, in dealing with the media, which is absolutely central to any election winning project uh, and so on. So... There are some lessons, although, as we've discussed on this podcast many times before, this is not 97. um, And the electorate is in a very different place to what it was in 97. Uh, The electorate now uh, voted, this is an electorate that voted for the upheaval of Brexit in Scotland. They're voting, in many cases, for the upheaval of independence. Um, It's an electorate that has suffered from the financial crash in 2008 that turned many assumptions on their heads. It's an electorate that then endured the austerity era of the coalition um, and has now... uh, got to work its way through the consequences of all these seismic events and throw in the pandemic and you've got a completely different set of circumstances from 97. 
Um, but the lessons are about that energy of appearing to own the future, of uh, of being exciting and reassuring at the same time, to have policies uh, that reflect both, um, and to be clear about values, and to make values part of the issue. They, in, in 97, only did that partially. Uh, if you strip back what they were saying, it was basically competence versus incompetence. But I think after the last four terms of conservative rule, where uh, there has been a confusion of ideology in recent times, you know, Theresa May talking about the value of the state, uh, Boris Johnson saying, call me Rooseveltian, but then having Thatcherite chancellors blocking their initiatives. You have to raise values more clearly than just trying to beat them on competence. Uh, but, but owning the future is a kind of art form in opposition. Um, now, it's very. I saw the thing that uh, Keir Starmer's office asked Tony Blair to do, to endorse them in the local elections, to speak about the values of a Labour government and so on. Uh, and and that's that's great. There needs to be a connection between the past and the present, um, but not too much. You know, there was no asking. Tony Blair didn't ask Jim Callaghan to do the equivalent. Uh, Margaret Thatcher didn't ask Ted Heath to do the equivalent. Um, it needs to be about the future um, and framing that in its own unique and distinct way. Um, anyway, more on that in the coming months, no doubt. We've got the local elections, uh, which will inevitably have their own impact on uh, British politics, um, as they always do, although I suspect it'll be limited. But let's see. Let's see where we are uh, next week on that front. And now, if it's OK with all of you, let's go to your questions. Okay, right now here I go. It's j just just have a cup of water or glass of wine or some whiskey while I uh, get your questions up. And um, yeah, here they all are. Um, now, as ever, I've had many many questions. All of them brilliant. I've read them. They kind of. I hope some of you res who haven't been read out that they kind of stimulate thoughts um, on my reflections. Um, but now over to all of you. If I could begin. Um, with the co-payment debate, um, because there were so many interesting responses from very well-informed uh, people, far more informed than me, I hasten to add. Um, and so, yeah, so this is the, I say the context is, here is a country, Britain, uh, I remember Roy Jenkins saying once, uh, and it was a, he was absolutely right. Uh, the problem with Britain is it wants American levels of taxation and European levels of public services. And how do you address that conundrum? So we on this podcast are trying to address the conundrum of a country reluctant to pay tax levels of quite a lot of European countries, but wanting European public services. And I kind of raised maybe co-payments as part of the answer uh, for the NHS. But anyway, here uh, is now we're going, yeah, we've got Norway first. Dr. Mark Harper. Um, yeah, Mark is a regular listener, contributor. Uh, he's writing a book on the joys of cold water swimming, um, which is going to be part of our uh, rock and roll politics cooperative. No question. We're all going to go cold water swimming. 
Anyway, this is what Mark has to say. I don't have, don't claim to have the definitive answers, but as someone who's currently working as a doctor in, in both Norway, which has co-payments, and the UK, and has a degree in the history of medicine, I think I'm reasonably qualified to lob in a few comments. I, I think that does qualify, Mark, far more than me. My feeling is, uh, this is Mark, not me, my feeling is that a low level of co-payments would be a good thing. It's a matter of how you set them. In Norway, it costs around £15 to £30 to go to the GP or attend A&E. Although if an emergency, uh, such as when I broke my leg a few months ago, oh my God, I hope you weren't swimming, Mark, when you broke your leg, it's free. You also pay something for x-rays, again around £25. However, the total amount is capped for everyone at around £300, including prescriptions. I reckon you could set this price even lower. If it costs £5, possibly even £10 to visit your GP or A&E, I think people who really needed it would still go, but others would think twice. I also think it's important to look at it not just in terms of raising revenue, but about reducing no-shows, i.e. missing appointments and so on, um, which costs a lot of money. Yeah, it's th this is again about... Um, getting this is about kind of responsibility how you become more responsibility this relationship we've got with the uh, nhs uh, now i know many of you disagree with this by the way um there's also no need to set up a new means testing apparatus this is mark you just use the system that's already in place for free prescriptions okay yeah so uh, on a related note norway has had a way better pandemic than the UK, with schools and shops for the most part remaining open, mainly by early government intervention. They locked down just a week or two earlier at the beginning and on a couple of subsequent occasions. Yeah, well, under Johnson, Britain was so slow to this. Um, so, and, oh yeah, he adds, Mark adds, of course, what we really need is an outdoor swimming infrastructure, yeah, which will allow people to self-treat many conditions, as my book, Chill, um, will uh, make clear. I would be very happy to run the well-being side of the rock and roll politics pod cooperative. i got to keep those bakers, knitters and delivery runners healthy. We're up for this, Mark. Um, I haven't yet consulted with the bakers, knitters and delivery runners, um, but uh, I, I'm going to impose cold water swimming as part of it. So that is now your branch. So keep us informed with chill. And thank you with your thoughts on co-payments. Now over to Portugal, James Buckley. A brief note on co-payments. Here, Portugal is a cautionary example. Taxes are high here, very, very high when considered in relation to incomes that are very low. Nonetheless, we have to pay to see a doctor and we cover some of our prescription costs as well. Result, we resent paying for everything twice, once in taxes, then again at point of service. And personally, although I'm not poor, I find myself rationing essential medication. Um, so, well, this was the theory put forward last week by uh, the great legendary Tim Bale. 
who said the deterrent impact of co-payments meant people got more ill and it cost the NHS more in the end. Uh, We have a response to that coming up shortly. Um, Thank you for that, James. Uh, Now we go over to Tony Ellis, who writes, landing shortly in Amsterdam, and the podcast was just the right length for my delayed flight from Manchester. Oh, that's that's great. Um, And Tony says, Lucas had a good point uh, in the co-payment debate about an NHS independent inquiry. This is something Lucas mentioned last week. Better still, why not a royal commission with cross-party commitment to act on the findings? It would scour the world for the best bits of socialised healthcare, much like the Japanese did for whole chunks of their society in the late 19th century when they westernised. The NHS 1948 model is battered by endless government reform, in in inverted comma, which no longer functions effectively. Um, uh, Yeah, so uh, the, the trouble is these commissions can take place, last a long time, Tony, governments might not act on it, and so on. Um, but you're right about the need to learn from elsewhere. Um, uh, Kathy Mears is, a, is very sceptical. For me, the answer is simple. We already have a system that ensures that those who have sufficient income pay more than those who have less. We call this income tax. This system is already in place, needs no mule bureaucracy to be set up and ensures that those who have less get the same treatment as those who have more. The question is whether any government is bold enough to set tax levels at an amount that will provide the quality of services that we all want. And that is the question. And I think the answer to that, Cathy, is no. Um, And that's hence the debate. Um, Because if there is this uh, obstacle to putting up taxes to pay for it, um, how the hell does the money get in? Now, Caroline Morgan, who triggered this by her experience, she lives in London and Brussels, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, replies directly to the Tim Bale argument. And she says, Tim Bale may be right if the NHS worked as it's supposed to and had enough doctors, but the NHS is coming apart at the seams. Surely a system such as the Belgian one, where you walk in the door or call a number that's signposted outside the surgery to make the appointment and then get offered an appointment immediately is preferable. Only this week I've heard on the radio that in parts of the UK you have to wait up to two years for a hospital appointment and a GP was interviewed about the difficulty in recruitment. Um, Just two examples of why the NHS isn't working. Um, So, yeah, uh, the the Belgium system does sound much, much better, better resourced, uh, more responsive, and it includes co-payments. Anyway, uh, she suggests that maybe there's a PhD thesis to be done in comparing the two systems, UK versus Belgium. Uh, She suggests Tim Bale should do a postdoc research. Tim's very busy. Caroline. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, we've got to work out how to do it. 
Um, oh, and oh, uh, Caroline writes, Rock and Roll Politics is a highlight of my week. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, and this idea of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. May I be an EU specialist for us? You've got the job. Uh, it's not something useful like bread making or beanie knitting, but I can keep us all informed about the latest Brexit idiocies. Yeah, well... Yeah, I don't know whether that would cheer us up, but we maybe maybe we could have a laugh over the bread and wine and the knitting and so on by reflecting on the total madness. Anyway, that's the co-payment debate. It's raging. Um, and there are many different perspectives. But as I say, the question is, how do we get the funding in? And if it could be done politically by putting up taxes, um, as long as the money was then spent efficiently without this kind of fracturing that was done under the guise of reform versus anti-reform. That is clearly a route. Um, But look at the mess we're in now with the the national insurance rise supposedly to address the historic social care problem, going to fund the backlog in the NHS, but with the implication that it's then going to be shifted to social care. Well, that won't happen. But of course, that means there's still the social care issue to be addressed and uh, the future of the NHS, because that hasn't been thought through with this panic of transferring the money meant for social care to the NHS. Um, Yeah, so it's a mess. It really is a mess. Anyway, um, yeah, over, uh, thank you for that. Now on to other matters. Oh, Stuart Grant sent me um, a great photo, which I was thrilled about, of him in Wembley, Staten, Wembley Stadium waiting to see the Tyson Fury, Dillian White big fight. And he photographs him reading my book on the Prime Ministers we never had. Um, and, you know, I bet the whole of Wembley noticed that and have all gone to buy the book. Um, But anyway, thank you for that. He says, um, oh yeah, he wonders whether the next uh, Prime Minister we never had might be Jeremy Hunt, who's being much talked about as a successor to Johnson. Uh, In Stuart's view, a talented and likeable politician, but in any runoff for the Tory leadership, he would almost certainly be pitted against a candidate to the right of him politically. And given the makeup of the Tory membership, I would have thought that uh, any other candidate would most probably win. Uh, Yeah, will he be a future prime minister we never had? Um, Yeah, quite possibly. Um, He fought it last time, of course. He was a Remainer. He was beaten by uh, the hardline Brexiteer Boris Johnson. The membership is still the same, only a few years older. Um, And so it will be tough for him. And what I would say, just as a warning, is that if Johnson were to fall, if you listened last week about when prime ministers fall, it's a big if, um, uh, the the leadership contest will be depressingly skewed to the right. In other words, Hunt will have to uh, intensify his Euroscepticism. He will have to pledge to bust the Northern Ireland Protocol to have a chance of winning, probably. Um, and 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 all, it will be a contest to the right, um, and uh, it, it will not be the most enlightening, forward-looking contest. See, the Tory Party, you can see from Theresa May and Johnson, are trying at that level to finally break away from the Thatcherism that was framed to deal with the situation in the late seventies, early eighties. But they've become intoxicated by it. And uh, the next contest will be 
done there. There will be no call me a Rooseveltian. You know, I believe in an active state. There will be no talk about the good the government can do, I suspect, in that um, contest. So thank you, Stuart. Uh, Stuart, by the way, yeah, socks. He's the, he's the he's the Union Jack sock provider in our tribute to Lord Frosty Frost, who is now being talked about. Denise Willier has emailed about it. You know, as a, he's being cited for every seat that becomes available as a Tory candidate. He's I, he's done exactly what I knew would happen. Uh, he ran a mile from the consequences of his own inept Brexit deal by resigning and has now become the great prophet. You know, every column is oh, Lord Frosty Frost on this, Lord Frosty Frost on that. <coughs> anyway, we will pay tribute with our Union Jack socks. Um, Hugh Carr, uh, we were talking about one-party rule in England with the continuous, near-continuous elections of a Conservative government. He's looking at the SNP in Scotland and he says... Uh, that he senses Scottish antipathy to London will grow as the Scottish public perceive the UK government as led by <coughs> rich English public school and Oxbridge graduates with little knowledge or interest of things outside the southeast and focused on Brexit, which is something most Scots still oppose. And that will fuel the SNP one-party rule in Scotland. Yeah, I think you are uh, right in that dynamic that... Um, Part of what fuels, I mean, the SNP has been one-party rule for a very long time uh, in Scotland. Uh, and there are many questions to be asked about um, delivery in that context. Um, but while England uh, elects <coughs> governments, there's a very good book out by Simon Cooper. <coughs> Sorry, I'm just going to cough. By Simon Cooper, the FT journalist, about the impact of Oxford on modern Britain and Brexit in particular. And while England uh, elects these people with a passivity that we've talked about before, you can see why Scotland goes a different way. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a dance between two different parties with one part, two different places with one party rule. And there's a connection between both I've had quite a few uh, emails about uh, the art of leadership and charisma and wit and so on, uh, and, and Keir Starmer and, uh, and his need to learn some of these arts. And Gillian Oliver gives the example of, uh, you said Blair was an artist, uh, whatever, took going back to 97, it was part artistry. It was focused artistry, but it was partly an art form to win in the way that they did then. And Gillian Oliver says, I remember a Blair press conference, this was when he was Prime Minister, when he was talking about the London Olympics in 2012, and some, one of the journalists said, will you still be Prime Minister then? And he shot, shot back, oh yeah, and I'll be competing as well. Um, yeah, that's a good joke. And, and you make a joke, this is when Brown, Gordon Brown was breathing down his neck and wanted to get his job and so on. And sometimes you hear Starmer say, the joke's not funny anymore in reference to jo Johnson. While Johnson is still in place, he could say, this is a hard joke and a bad joke, and it looks like we haven't reached the punchline yet. Uh, some of the commentary in foreign press media about this government is very funny. Labour could quote them to compensate for their lack of funny lines. Yeah, uh, I, and I know Kistaman knows this, and uh, he has deployed this occasionally in 
Prime Minister's questions. Wit is a political weapon uh, that should not be underestimated. And not only does it expose the weaknesses of the government, it makes voters laugh with you and to some extent makes Tory MPs despair at the capacity of the other side to mock. Um, and it is powerful. And the two winners from opposition, as Labour leaders of the opposition, Wilson and Blair, deployed wit as absolutely a key part of their political armoury. Thank you, Gillian. Uh, uh, James. Newman, I'm a long listener of your podcast. I'll thank you very much. I try to listen to your podcast weekly uh, as I can't trust uh, BBC outlets uh, or other outlets with the exception of Channel 4. Uh, Just wanted to touch base on the topic of why the English in particular are so passive and uninterested in politics. This was um, a theme of our discussions, uh, for those of you new to the podcast over recent weeks, the kind of passivity of uh, England, uh, English voters. And um, he suggests one reason is education, education and education, in particular civic education. In Scotland, they teach civics, also known as modern studies. This course teaches you how the voting system works, how Scottish and UK Parliament works, modern history and geopolitics. They also teach civic education courses in most of the EU. When I tell other Europeans about this, they're astounded it's not taught in England. In fact, England is one of the few nations in Europe where they don't teach it, which might explain a lot. Many English voters don't seem to even know the basics of how our electoral system works works or that Northern Ireland um, uh, works differently and so on. Uh, If you don't know how politics functions, then one is more vulnerable uh, to believe kind of propaganda that erupts uh, around you. Uh, That's very interesting. I think if it was taught well and in a lively way, um, that would be a a, a way of getting people engaged early on. You see, politics, I'm a Spurs season ticket holder and I hear the people around me talking about football uh, with an insight that is brilliant but could equally apply to politics. You know, who's down, why are they down, who's up, why are they up, um, who should lead in football, who should be a manager, why, how they compare with others. All of that is a way you could get people engaged in politics beyond the fundamental that it affects your lives, politics. Um, And if you can work out ways of teaching in a classroom, brilliant. I could sense ways in which it could be taught pretty boringly as well. I was taught British Constitution and it was really boring. And my teacher once um, gave a a session on prime ministers. She got the current prime minister wrong, um, which I thought was a bit of an ominous sign uh, in a British constitution teacher. But uh, but it's fascinating. I hadn't clocked that that was a big theme of Scottish education and education in Europe. There's got to be a way of getting England more engaged with politics. Um, anyway, from Paul Cooper... Maybe I'm too old now to understand how society works, but if I were a young person, or even Angela Rayner, I would be hoping for a lot more respect from society. This is a reference to the Angela Rayner mail on Sunday front page. Uh, I got an email from uh, uh, Andy Conway about this as well. Um, You know, what's going on at Westminster? 
you know, some story about MPs comparing Angela Rayner at Prime Minister's questions to Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct crossing her legs and, you know, trying to put off Johnson. It was, the whole thing was ridiculous. Um, and a reflection, well, yeah, there's a lot going on at Westminster at the moment, isn't it? Pest, sex pest gate and all the rest of it. Um, and I think there are so many contributory factors to this. Um, we need to do it in another podcast, but I will just mention a couple of ones. I think, um, oh yeah, Venetia Kane uh, mentions this, you know, one of the factors is uh, just the number of public school boys packed onto the uh, benches who have no respect for women. And that is a factor. Um, another factor is the way MPs are chosen. Um, they are chosen often for the wrong criteria. Uh, their commitment to a locality um, uh, where they live um, uh, there is a resentment of centralised interference, but perhaps there should be more centralised interference to check up on the character and the past of potential candidates. Um, I mean, this guy who came in claiming he was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, what was he doing anyway? He claimed he was looking at websites to, on tractors when he got the website on porn. But what was he doing looking at tractors, you know, in the middle of some... House of Commons uh, debate, um, and and so so there are many different factors in play. That the place itself is quite cocooned when you walk in. It takes you into a different world. Uh, MPs uh, become employers of advisors who are desperate to please, but they aren't trained necessarily uh, to be employers. Um, and so there are many different factors. Let, let's look at it because it tells you a bit about politics, really, um, uh, more widely than just, um, you know, this kind of maniac looking at tractors when it was porn and uh, so on. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, Mark, thank you for that. Just a couple of... Uh, I know I'm just doing this to please you all. bit on electoral reform. Um uh, James Munro wonders why electoral reform and having PR is the most important issue to me, but doesn't seem to be with the public. Why? Well, uh, it's one of the reasons why I can't get too worked up about it, James. You know, if you think about it, imagine the next election and a new government is formed. List all the challenges, sorting out the NHS, sorting out social care, climate change, and all these things. Um, is there the space for the energy-sapping referendum on electoral reform and getting MPs to cite themselves up to a change in the voting system that could well mean many of them lose their seats? At the, you know, there's all kinds of issues with it. And, and, and voters, you know, I, I, I despair of voters' disengagement with politics, but I can kind of understand why a voting system is not kind of uppermost in their uh, minds. Um, uh, Dominic Toy wonders whether if there is an election of a Sinn Féin first minister, what are the kind of constitutional implications? Um, well, there are many, Dominic, if you don't mind me waiting for a full podcast on that um, uh, as and when this happens. But with that, throw in the 
the, the government's apparent desire to bust the Northern Ireland Protocol that it itself negotiated and all the rest of it. Uh, Northern Ireland post-Brexit is a combustible place uh, with all kinds of implications for the rest of the uh, UK. Um, thank you, uh, Dominic. Mark Lockeran, also from Northern Ireland, hails the advantages of PR used uh, there for, uh, for many years, indeed decades. Uh, he claims Northern Ireland is an integral part of the political scene and an absolute must if everyone is to feel they're properly uh, represented. Yeah, and I know it works there. And um, uh, it's just how we get from there to the from the first past the post to the uh, uh, some kind of PR in the UK that I think raises quite a few issues. Um, but he puts the case: it makes every vote equal, no matter where you lo- live. At a stroke, there would be no worthless votes in safe seat areas, and so on. Uh, Mark, thank you for contributing to this never-ending debate, and please do contribute when I announce the electoral reform uh, special. Uh, and uh, finally, from. Andrew, who writes from a sunny Berlin, uh, a further testament to your increasingly global reach, global leech. Um, I've no doubt that our rock and roll movement will soon conquer the world in terms of political analysis. Yeah, I think we should just conquer the world, actually. Um, It's all there. Every element is uh, in our group, our movement. Um, And he's, uh, oh yeah, he said, I spent the Easter visiting my parents in a less than sunny but no less charming mid-Wales on the coast. Uh, I furthermore have it on good authority that our local MP Michael Fabricant was holidaying in the same area. During this time, we inevitably broached the topic of current events and the ongoing scandals facing our embattled Prime Minister. Uh, My parents are staunch defenders of Johnson's government, despite examples, all the examples of misconduct. Uh, He has recently condemned the comments made anonymously against Angela Rayner by a member of his own party, and he has described these comments quite rightly as misogynistic. However, I can't help but wonder if this might have been a sly Cacus-style tactic from the ruling party of making certain accusations that will resonate with more extreme sycophants within the party supporters, whilst also allowing Johnson to position himself as a moralist. He adds, what are your thoughts on this topic and how can we as rock and rollers respond uh, in light of such a trigger-happy new media which published such rotten drivel? This is a reference to the Mail on Sunday front-page story about Rayner that Johnson subsequently uh, condemned and said they would track down this person, misogynist, all the rest of it. Well, it it wasn't a plan, although you're right to say, Andrew, that um, the fact that the Mail on Sunday splashed on it and the Mail on Sunday is kind of trying Tribally uh, Tory uh, and fairly misogynist um, suggests that they thought that this would resonate with certain readers, that's for sure, else they wouldn't have put it on the front page. Uh, and Johnson felt the need to show distance, even though isn't there one of the things doing the rounds at the moment that number 10, as part of its Christmas fun, had a sexist of the year competition and all that? I mean, there's a lot of it about... Uh, at Westminster, and possibly more of it about than elsewhere. But what did you discuss it with your parents, Andrew, who are big Boris Johnson fans? Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they thought about it all. Um, anyway, look, thank you so much. What a range of topics uh, we have covered from Ukraine.
to Angela Rayner Mail on Sunday, Basic Instinct via co-payments and all kinds of other things. Um, thank you. Brilliant questions, as ever. Do keep them coming in. You know the address now, don't you? And if you're running while you're listening to that and want to write, Steve Rick. 14 at iCloud.com, and it's about kind of 55, 56 minutes in. Um, yeah, so that would be great. Uh, that's about it. If you could leave a review, only if it's a good one, that would be brilliant because then more people get access to our growing, well, what do we call it now, cooperative movement. Uh, we are the John Lewis of the podcast world. Um, and yeah, don't forget King's Place on June the 8th. And if you do listen, oh yeah, and the Edinburgh Festival, last two weeks. And if you do listen um, on Patreon, you'll get the latest election bonus podcast on 2017. I think there are as many lessons in 2017 as there are now in 1997. But I know that's a contentious thing to claim. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, have a great week. It's going to, you know, as, as I say often at this point, the the wider context is pretty damn bleak. Um, but, you know, we've got the kind of bread making, beanie knitting and all the rest of it facilities uh, and whiskey in Scotland and wine and all the rest of it um, uh, to have a good time as well. And let's gather next week to make sense of it all once more. We'll have had the local election results. Will they be pivotal? I cannot remember a time when local election results were pivotal, but let's see, and much more besides when we gather next week. Have a good time. Thank you.